Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I'm so excited today because we have a guest that was on in 2020 that I know you all loved. And at the time, it was like a, it was like a three-part series, like, am I okay, of influencers in the time of COVID. I think it was like April, May 2020 when, when we realized like we were in the thick of it regarding the pandemic. It wasn't a two-week lockdown. Uh, things got really serious. It was important that rules were followed for the sake of public health and safety. And there was a real microscope on what influencers were doing specifically in regards to, you know, upholding protocol. And I remember feeling very stressed at the time being like, I want to talk about this, but I don't know how. I think by and large, people are like doing their best and people are a little bit hard on them. But at the same time, like there, there was just an egregious ignoring of rules by people like Taza and Ariel Charnas and whatever. And I wanted like a third party to talk to who had some like expertise in this space who could speak to this like journalistically. So we weren't just snarking. And I was looking back at my notes and I remember being very nervous to like pitch and try to get Stephanie McNeil, who at the time worked for BuzzFeed on the podcast. Anyway, point being, we're going to talk to her today about her book that came out this past week called Swipe Up for More. It's a really interesting book where she follows like three influencers over the course of two years and also kind of muses about what she's learned about how the industry has evolved, how she feels about different platforms and how they support their creators. There's a whole chapter about how things shifted in like 2020. And she just follows the stories of three very different women who've had very different experiences online. And it's just, it's a really fun read. And I knew like, it's something you guys would pick up anyway. And I know I've been going hard for Beth's book club lately, but there was a handful of books that came out this spring that I really wanted to cover. And like I told you, ever since writing a book, I just feel so differently about wanting to support people and their expertise. And yeah, the rest of the summer, it'll probably be a lot of solo ups, but this kind of rounds out Beth's book club for now. So we'll interview Stephanie in a little bit, but I just have to read you <laughs> the notes I wrote to her when I was pitching her to come on. I think this was April. What is the date of this? Monday, April 27th, 2020. I wrote topics I want to cover. Ariel Charnas. Also, Taza and Spiralized. Why would I want to go over like the zucchini spiraler? And just the general exodus in early stages of COVID. Do people still care? These people have nine lives, I swear. I also think there's a weird conundrum in terms of when someone has a controversy. You should unfollow, but then you save the drama, thus reframing them into more of an entertainment role and someone who needs to be a role model. Do we want it both ways? I think it's interesting that we're entertained by their presence and so want them around. It hugely trivialized their job and importance. I don't know where I stand. Again, this isn't an email. <laughs> this is like way too much information. Loop giveaways. Beyond the tonal issue, I think people don't even realize that when your followers are your currency, the false audience inflation that these giveaways yield is ethically questionable at best. And like, you have over 500k followers. Do you really need more now? Do you even care who they are? How is it fair that their inventory for brand placement is priced comparably to someone who organically attracted and repelled the right people? The time was very obsessed with loop giveaways seeming like a form of casual fraud. Let's see what else. Random influencers that are now awake from far-right conspiracies i.e. Jalen Schroeder. I forgot about her, who left the Mormon church last year, and I'm not sure she sees the parallels of groupthink with this too. This is maybe for me because I don't want to breathe life into the theories, but their participation is so bizarre to me. I'm also obsessed with the ubiquity of tie-dye sweatsuits and can confirm as a person who went for it that my life is most certainly not better off as a result. <laughs> Influencer capitalization and brand deals during this time. What's appropriate? What's not? Does a business's usual approach provide a welcome escape? 
Do we want a mere acknowledgement or a tonal shift? If our consumption is unchanging during a trying social climate, should their ability to monetize our consumption change? It's interesting to read this back because three years ago, influencers during COVID, I mean, I, I, I could feel the rage and frustration and anger people felt toward these people, like through my screen, through my DMs, through Facebook groups. Like, I felt very overwhelmed as a person that like had cultivated their own audience and was kind of an influencer. I was struggling with feeling like a lot of it was a bit misplaced when people were so nitpicking what influences were doing during that time. But then as a consumer, I was also pissed that like someone had an outdoor pool and I was stuck inside my one bedroom apartment in the city away from my family. Like everyone was collectively suffering and scared. And I think we all took it out in weird ways. (laughs) And the vitriol toward influencers during this specific time when I interviewed Stephanie, I remember feeling both like co-signing it, but also wanting to like examine it responsibly because I didn't feel like it was fully fair. It was fair if you were neglecting COVID protocols and acting like the pandemic didn't exist. But there was this huge conversation at the time of, and I know this isn't the proper term, but this was what at the time people were talking about who is and who isn't tone deaf. And like everything was, is this, is this thing this person's doing out of touch? We all had so much time to sit down and consume people's content. And I think that when we were going through a hard time and like somebody else seemed unaffected by it or was doing an ad or whatever, it was kind of like confusing. Like this doesn't feel right. But then you realize that we're kind of conditioned to treat their jobs, treat them as casual friends, treat their jobs as something they just do for fun. But it quite literally is a real business with like real deadlines and contracts. And remember I did like a survey (laughs) asking all these questions trying to get to the source of what was so frustrating to people and maybe like figure out a way we could all move together like with a little less hatred. Because I think that most people during that time, again, with the exception of the outliers that were breaking rules, were just kind of like doing the best they can trying to pretend things were normal. And like, it's not your fault. I'm jealous of your like in-home gym and backyard veranda. But, you know, you had that instinct to be like angry that some people were less affected. Anyway, weird times. But I remembered when I did that survey, one of the biggest things was it was like a look in the mirror to go through the state and realize like I agreed with you guys, but it wasn't necessarily productive because I would ask, do you want people to be, like, do you value transparency? Do you want people to be completely honest? And the answer was by and large, yes. And then I was like, okay, so during a challenging social climate, do you want people to be honest if their reality is like out of touch? And people were like, yeah, no. <laughs> So then it became like, okay, so if people just live this way, you want them to actively pretend like they don't. My argument was like, just be maybe more selective and careful about what you show. And then I was asking questions like, do you get entertainment out of this? Yes or no. And then like, do you think they should be able to monetize ads during these times? And people were like, no. And then it's like, okay, well, if you're consuming Netflix and streaming sites, radio, TV, internet display ads, like everyone else is monetizing. Why these? Why can't these p- people specifically monetize? Anyway, I bring that up because I think that sometimes influencers, like sometimes I'll pick apart in them things I hate about myself. Sometimes it's just very much a me thing of me directly comparing. I f- will f- forever find it confusing how much commentary and criticism I have of an industry I also get a lot of like value and benefit from and want to support. And I think that there's so much hypocrisy in how I, as a consumer, treat influencers and separate them from public figures in a way that I'm not always sure is fair. 
But I still I think it's important to have the dialogue because if people make money off of our eyeballs, like we are allowed to have an opinion, as I've always said. I, I just think this is an endlessly interesting topic. And I love to talk to people about the art of the influencer. Oh, I did write down one more note, um, which is actually kind of relevant because they said, maybe touch on Caroline Calloway. People ask me to talk about her and I'm not that interested, but I do think it's funny that Heidi Gardner had one of her Matisse knockoffs on the wall and can't get over the nude pin to the top of Twitter. Wow, that's something that I don't understand any of that. <laughs> Need to revisit. From my, okay, really fast on that note, can we just talk about how Caroline Calloway's book is available for pre-order? It is $65. It's called Scammer, and she refers to it as the world's first self-identifying manic pixie dream book. And I'm going to tell you I'm so frustrated because I'm so interested. She also sells merch. She like literally sells snake oil. She sells scammer <laughs> tarot cards. I don't know if she's a genius or if this is troubling, but I don't know. She says, I've loved pouring my motherfucking soul into every scrap of fancy paper and satin ribbon and stupid ink in it. The 20K in marbled paper from Italy. The dumb, dumb ribbon I cut up. The words with secrets that I know snarky articles will be written about or shitty podcasters will talk about. The words that I would type a thousand lifetimes again because they are exactly what i want to say my greatest wish is that a generation or two of chaotic good women that's an chaotic good that's interesting from now your ancestors will giggle and delight in the fact that you bought this internet heirloom or maybe they'll sell it at an auction for a pretty penny who knows the last part of my wish is that you hold this book close to your chest and thank these pages for finding you exactly when you needed them to anyway i mean yeah they're like pages papers from italy i don't know it's an expensive pre-order can't say i'm not intrigued but she was like the talk of especially 2019 if you recall she like got famous from her instagram captions in like 2014 2015 amassed hundreds of thousands of followers and then sold a book flat out told press it was worth a half a million dollars i thought it was like 375 but i just saw in a vox article that it was a half million dollar advance then she thought it was like too sexist and boy focused and wanted to like write her own book but she'd already gotten a hundred thousand dollars of the advance and had to pay it back but she spent it all so then throughout 2019 I gather is when she started trying to do like workshops and monetize stuff. She started selling paintings that like looked like Matisse. She famously had that creativity workshop that she charged $165 per person for. And it was a four hour workshop. One hour she wasn't present for and you made friends. The other three hours you're supposed to hand make orchid flower crowns, do something with mason jars, uh, like network. You were going to drink like coffee with oat milk, eat vegan food. I feel torn because uh, on the one hand, it's like, I don't know. I, you know how many dollars I've dropped over the course of the early 2010s on like a paint and sip? People like activities. People like to network. People like to do creative stuff. And if she was going to offer like an actual product, who cares? Like I charge for live shows. Influencers do meet and greets. I don't think this was the scam that we wanted it to be. But in the Anna Delvey Firefest era, Billy McFarland, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, we, we've talked about this. Very scam-tastic era that we were kind of equating things that just simply were not comparable in terms of like price point level of criminality, etc. But Caroline kind of did this interesting thing where she adopted the persona. She kind of just owned it in a weird way. What I'm confused about is not knowing if part of the bit is that this book like that doesn't have like a clear release or it it hasn't been lining up with what she said because she said nine weeks ago that it was dropping mid-May. It's now mid-June. And then she said the hard launch will start going out to the mail to reviewers on Monday, June 12th, and to the general public Friday, June 16th. Um, it is not out yet. I'm really confused. 
But she's in the past few weeks been profiled by Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Daily Telegraph, Glamour. It seems like a marketing bit. The next drama, will I or will I not mail out copies of Scammers to her viewers as promised on June 12th or stumble and fall flat to my face? Only one way to find out. Set an alarm to check back here on Monday the 12th. I'm so confused. Rolling Stone gave it its first review and it's a really positive review it says the writing itself is swifty and sapphic and layered and annoyingly clever even if you try not to bob along to the tune devastatingly self-aware she handles trauma and sadness with relatability and deft skill she wrote this a day ago it's now june 17th as i talk through this i'm so nervous about the net this next week because that's when the very first orders of scammer will start arriving and the press will kick into an even higher more frenzied gear but these first three reviews have given me so much hope for the eight years straight it felt like i could not catch a fucking break as soon as I kicked my Adderall addiction, I had to deal with my $100,000 worth of debt to my publishers. As soon as I had an idea for how to do that, my creativity workshops went viral as a scam. As soon as I went viral as a scam, Natalie reached out to cut to pitch her tell-all. As soon as I felt like I had finally gotten back on my feet after my first public shaming and was embracing my new scammer brand, Natalie's article dropped. As soon as Natalie's article dropped, her dad's body was found. Very sad. What I'm wondering is, Natalie Beach, the person that wrote that tell-all article about her in the cut in late 2019, She's coming out with a book that comes out June 20th. So it's like, did Caroline delay it to, you know, for that cohesion? Did they know each other was writing a book? There's no way this is a coincidence. Natalie's is called Adult Drama and Other Essays. And then, uh, I don't know. It's like a get like meta marketing and it's called Scammed. Maybe she is or isn't scamming you while it's happening. It's like $65. And then like, it didn't come out when she said it would. Then I find out that Natalie, her like ex-friend that used to, ghostwrite her captions and allegedly a lot of her first book proposal her memoir that i gather is going to have a lot of caroline related info in it is coming out so like maybe caroline pushed it for that and it's so i don't know it's like sometimes i'm here for a gimmick a rogue marketing move sometimes i don't like it when people make it seem like their audience is not intelligent enough to like pick up on how like timing and stuff aligns i would imagine i wonder if they kind of buried the hatchet but keep maps of where they put them and we're in cahoots to like align this timeline for both of their benefit though i don't know that because i honestly forgot about that story entirely so it kind of reminds me of the dynamic of anna delvey and her friend that wrote the book my friend anna and i think like she sold the rights or had she basically monetized or capitalized in some way with optioning her experience with anna delvey in some way and natalie did too she talks about in her most recent cut article that she's like contracted to provide these details to whoever is creating these limited series based on her experience with Caroline, which I just think is like so crazy. And I don't know how I feel about it, but I do remember when I read the 2019 article that Natalie wrote. That I remember thinking it was interesting about this essay it was just kind of like the being on the inside of somewhat toxic dynamic between friends, one that was a bit resentful. And I don't mean that in like a rude way, but Natalie described in the essay how like men treated Caroline differently, how she was envious that she seemed to be wealthy and attractive and effortlessly moved through the world and had money and all these things that she didn't work that hard for while she kind of was doing all the labor behind it. I thought this Vox article did a good job kind of explaining the climax, saying then in the climax comes a betrayal. In one version of this story, the betrayal is that moment in Amsterdam in which Calloway abandons the loyal friend who has supported her through a drug spiral and is masterminding her professional success, leaving the friend to walk their streets alone all at night. In another version of the story, the betrayal is Natalie Beach seeing a former friend reach a certain level of internet notoriety and capitalizing on the moment by writing an essay about some of the lowest moments of that friend's life. Both are true and both are sad. And that is true. So anyway, I don't know when this book is coming out. It's very expensive pre-order. 
It's kind of funny. I don't know if it's self-published. I don't know what the deal is with the Italian papers. I don't know if this is a gimmick. The lines are blurring. And it's it, it's hard to argue for what is artful and clever and what is like kind of kitsch, you know? Anyway, I just, I guess that's the latest in Caroline Calloway's multiverse. I also just like the last name Calloway because of Alyssa Calloway, the class he brought from It Takes Two and Calloway Cellulars. Wonder where Steve Gutenberg's character would be today. Anyway, you guys, I can't say I'm not intrigued. That's the thing. That's the dilemma. You don't want to feed into it, but at the same time, you're curious. What are you going to do? Anyway, it was so lovely to get to talk to a fellow enthusiast of this category of public figure and to catch up with her after a couple years. And what going through these notes made me lol. <laughs> Clearly, I was really overthinking things at the time. but. That's what we love to do here. Live, laugh, love, and lurk the profiles of people that feel like old friends that are actually complete strangers and judge their behavior as if we would know what to do if we were in their position. So tip of the wide brim fashion hat to anybody who's been able to make this career work for themselves. I genuinely do think it's harder than it looks. And Stephanie talks about that in her book. And I think you'll love some of the insight, especially about one of your favorite bloggers that hasn't been as present on the internet, but we know all too well from her, you know, Oaxaca booby traps and more, <laughs> not to give too much away. Oh, and I almost forgot the day after we recorded. So she wrote this like kind of tongue in cheek article for Glamour where she works called Tom Sandoval has ruined white nail polish for everyone. Goodbye, OPI Funny Bunny. We'll miss you, Essie Marshmallow. I would add Essie Fiji to this as well because it's kind of a chalky pink white. Uh, add white mayonnaise to the list of things destroyed by the worm with a mustache. <laughs> Unfortunately for those of us who love a crisp alabaster mani for summer, the Vanderpump Rules sleazeballs made white nails a signature look. He plays in his lame-ass cover band with snow-tipped hands. He wags his cotton ball finger at people condescendingly as he pretends to have moral high ground on the show. In this week's re reunion episode, he consistently buries his face in nails that look dipped and white out to fake cry. I do love a white-out manicure. What a bonding ritual, giving a French mani to a popular girl in seventh grade because I have a steady hand. Um, truly a white manicure is the only thing Sandoval has been loyal to all season, so on and so forth. It's a very lighthearted article. Anyways, okay, so like Tom Sandoval has been through the ringer. Like every celebrity known to man is commenting on this. Like J-Lo is team Ariana. Like there could not be more negative <laughs> coverage for Tom Sandoval. But for some reason, he sees this article and freaking lays into Stephanie. And I'm laughing. I haven't actually talked to her about it. I hope she's okay. But like, it's it's kind of insane that of all things to latch onto, it was this nail polish article. And he posted a series of stories, said like, at Glamour Mag, at least have the courage to at me if you're going to talk shit. I thought your mag was about being positive and glamorous. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's like, clearly never read Glamour Mag. He's like, I thought Glamour was about glamorous. I thought this magazine was about all the towns and the countries. He said, not trashy. Also, what happened when I wear all the colors at Michigan Pride shows? I'd invite you, but unfortunately, they're sold out. And he says, add Steph E. McNeil with writing such disgusting, trashy, hateful and something article. How dare you call yourself a journalist? Reign of terror. He misspelled it. I'm a human being. You don't know me. At Glamour Mag. When did you start putting out articles with such vicious, personal, blind hatred towards someone on your platform? This is the kind of trashy bullying rhetoric you represent. I'm just shocked. And then he Googles the word journalist, tags her and says, print it out, maybe carry it in your wallet. I mean, so such odd behavior. And again, 
this is about his nail polish. Th- this is, it was tongue in cheek. Like this is like the least uh, harmful rhetoric I've seen about Tom Sandoval on the internet, truly. And I just thought it was, I'm laughing, but it was so shitty of him to question her integrity as a writer. It was so pathetic, even the way he approached it, uh, misspellings and all. And uh, the, I don't know, the Googling of journalism. I mean, she quite literally is a journalist. <laughs> he calls himself a musician. Uh, you know, there's kind of a loose definition there. I, j- of all things to hang on to, the nail polish is just too much for me. Uh, I mean, he's ruined countless things. I mean, in season five or six, he ruined like male French braids and, you know, platinum blonde streaks as if Chris Kirkpatrick hadn't already put us through the ringer with that and in sync. But I don't know. I guess it's per Stephanie's tweet, I guess they hit him where it hurts. And I just thought this was like a funny intersection of pop culture. And I feel like on the Internet, people go zero to PR like devil works hard. Chris Jenner works harder. Devil works hard. Tree pain works harder. And like in many cases, yeah. But this is a funny thing where I know Stephanie and I like this wasn't a PR plant, but it is kind of convenient that Tom gave her the spotlight right when her book was coming out. But I also know that's not something she planned. Uh, I, I don't think she wanted him to like attack her or be upset. I think it was just meant to be like lighthearted. But yeah, I mean, if anybody has any ideas for small feuds I can get into that like won't, you know, destroy an HSP, uh, just like mild things before my book comes out, hit me up. You just never know what's going to gain traction. And I hope this brought her more positive attention <laughs> than anything else, because I don't think many people are Team Sandoval. Like, I just, I truly can't imagine. It's the modern day Team Jolie, uh, but way worse. And also, was that messed up that we took sides and picked teams? Probably. It was a different time. Look at Catherine Heigl's redemption. Her uh, actors on actors with Ellen Pompeo. Outstanding. Oh, the pairings are so good. Uh, we've got Megan Fahey and Elizabeth Olsen. Since I have to like float once a day for my sanity, I've just been like putting on an actors on actors and floating away. Cheryl Lee Ralph and Jennifer Garner was like a, a, a verbal hug. I say float, but what I mean, I'm like taking a bath. Um, also, I dropped my iPhone in the bath this week and it, it's like unaffected and fine. Is that normal? I didn't put rice in it. I was just like too tired to care. And then it was fine. They must, I don't know. Maybe it's my, I'll be there in five, I swear, phone case from the merch shop. Casual plug, but. Yeah, that was exciting for me. I'm, I'm really taking anything I can get, hence why I'm emphatically endorsing the Variety Actors on Actors series. I mean, Jennifer Coolidge and Jeremy Allen White, what a thrill! We've, uh, uh, if there was ever, like, a living thirst trap to just, like, send me over the edge, uh, it's, it's Brett Goldstein and uh, Thea, what's his name? White Lotus. And Roy Kent. I mean, just, like, two dream men in one video. Having a semi-stale convo, if I'm honest, but charming nonetheless i did watch it twice anyway you guys okay that's enough pop culture news um let's get into the conversation with stephanie and i hope you enjoy it after a brief word from our sponsors who make this independent production possible and listen up because there's a very good sale going on i'm so excited one of our new advertisers is kosas it's such an incredible cosmetics brand i've been feeling torn between choosing to take care of my skin and like wear makeup but you don't actually have to with the right products I was spending too much time with a full contour bacon Brighton for the majority of the 2010s. I went a little too hard for full coverage, but I really appreciate Kosas because Kosas makes clean makeup for skincare freaks. Their complexion products are actually proven to make your skin better. They're dermatologist tested, safe for sensitive and acne prone skin and hypoallergenic. They have so many viral products. I think I first heard of them because of their wet oil lip gloss. That's like the perfect glossy lip oil that actually stays on. And my lately I've been very into their air brow and their brow pop. 
to get like a lift and tint in one. But what you probably are most familiar with if you are on social media is their Revealer Concealer. And it's cool because it's concealer meets eye cream. It's super creamy. It's weightless. It's a multitasker. And it's a concealer, eye cream, and spot treatment in one. And like I said, when I was just going a little hard for full coverage, um, I didn't really notice that I was like chalking out my under eye in a big way. And this is just so much more natural. It's creaseless. It's medium coverage. Their finish is smooth and radiant. And I'm just a really big fan. You can take their five-step shade finder to figure out your perfect match. I also think they have something so cool where you buy samples, you get site credit for every dollar you spend. You test them at home and then you use your credit for future purchases. They have this like take the site home kit which is brilliant because I just, I love trying things. I love makeup. This is exciting for me. Anyway, they're actually having a big sale right now if you're listening to this in real time, but make sure to use my code too, obviously. Millions of people have tried Kosas, making it one of the best-selling makeup collections at Sephora and their popular award-winning revealer concealer has over a thousand five-star reviews. So don't choose between wearing great makeup and taking care of your skin. Right now, Kosas is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to kosas.com slash be there in five. Go to ko sas.com slash be there in five for 15% off your first purchase plus free shipping on orders over $40. That's closest.com slash be there in five. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. Gotta say, you guys, one of the reasons I really like ButcherBox is because without a car, I wasn't going to the grocery store a lot and just the general convenience of having it come to my door. I've since gotten a vehicle since I'm expecting. Gotta say, not impressed with the grocery store selection, still gonna use ButcherBox. You can get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. They're hard to come by at the grocery store because it's hard to easily find high quality meat and seafood that you can trust, especially 100% grass fed beef, free range organic chicken, pork raised, crate free, wild caught seafood, you know, quality food that's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. These terms come with an insane premium at the grocery store that I've been noticing lately more than ever. I also told you I was in a salmon moment. And every time I talk about wild caught salmon, people are like, wait, what do you mean? And the key is the color. Bright and vibrant means a happy wild fish, I gather, and pale pink means like a sad farm fish. Don't quote me on that. But ButcherBox's salmon is bright and vibrant, and you can tell it was a happy wild fish. I feel a little sad saying that, but just think they have a really high-quality product at a much better price than grocery stores. Loving their burgers, loving making ground beef soft tacos, and their bacon is also to die. But anyway, ButcherBox is delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You can curate or customize your box plan. Anyway, this is a great gift. For people in your life, whether it's a dude you don't know what to buy for them or parents you want to have fresh food in the freezer for them so they don't have to grocery shop or just in general for your family to have healthy, affordable meat options at your disposal. We're huge fans. And ButcherBox is giving us a special deal. Sign up today using code BETHEREIN5 to receive ground beef for a year plus $20 off your first order. That's two pounds of ground beef free in every box for a year plus $20 off your first order when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five. Today we have back on the podcast, Stephanie McNeil. For many years, she was a senior culture reporter for BuzzFeed News, and she is now a senior editor at Glamour Magazine. On June 6th, her book is coming out called Swipe Up for More, which takes us behind the curtain into the secretive real world of influencers and gives us kind of unprecedented access to three major influencers, which, and this is so interesting, based on three years of on the fly, of fly on the wall research, and reporting as they build their empires, struggle with the haters and snarkers, fight for creative control from the tech platforms that enable their businesses, parent in public, and try to look good while doing it and beyond. And she's back on the podcast for the first time since May of 2020, where we dove into then unprecedented territory by analyzing influencer responses to like unprecedented times. Today, I'm excited to dive into what she's been working on ever since. 
with Swipe Up. Please welcome back Stephanie McNeil. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, I can't believe I haven't been back on since then. It's crazy. We should definitely be connecting more. I know. And think of all that's happened in our lives and on the feed since then. I mean, at the time, I think we were talking about like the first disappearance of Taza, you know, Ariel Charnas going to the Hamptons, like that, you know, people that were COVID rule dodgers were kind of top of mind. That was definitely our conversation. And it was really interesting because at the time, I really had just started to wrap my head around the idea of writing this book. And now this book is about to come out. It's a very full circle moment because, I don't know, I feel like probably for the six months before we spoke, I had really started to hone in on wanting to really focus on influencers and internet culture. Um, I had had some conversations about doing the book, but I hadn't even pitched the book yet. Um, I really had just started my Instagram probably a year before. Um, and I don't know, I feel like going on your podcast was really one of the first times that I talked about things in depth that I'd been thinking about for so long. And I just want to say thank you for giving me that opportunity back then. Thank you now. It's just, just like feels very exciting. Oh, my gosh. What's funny is I was so scared to talk to you because I was very scared of journalists. If I were a trained, <laughs> skilled journalist with credentials, I'd think I would be really annoyed by people like me that kind of shoot the shit without any like uh, rigor or journalistic, uh, you know, criteria. And I just wasn't sure if you thought people like me were kind of ridiculous. And uh, people loved that episode. That was such a big episode that year. And um, absolutely. I, I just want to cut in and say absolutely not. That is not what I thought at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know once I talked to you, I was like, oh, she's great. Um, but you've in podcasting, you learn that people often don't take you super seriously, which is fine. But and this is kind of speaks to like the work you do, too. Like one thing I've I've always loved about your work is you go out of your way to uh, legitimize the careers of like newer jobs, traditionally feminine spaces, places that people often don't take super seriously because they may seem unserious on the surface. You've treated bloggers and influencers and content creators throughout your career as the celebrities they were, but nobody was willing to admit they were um, when other mainstream outlets were mostly focused on celebrities in an entertainment capacity. But these people entertain me way more than mainstream celebrities do. And you've kind of always fought for that. And I've, I've loved your work over the years. And at the very, what I also like is at, the, at your core, you're kind of a fangirl too, right? Yeah, I think I think I am. I think I don't know if fan or a reader. Are, like you're a consumer. Not you're a consumer. I'm a consumer. Yeah, I I I I'm a fan girl of some. I would say. Um, I think I have always connected more with bloggers and influencers as something that I enjoy consuming more than traditional celebrities. Um, I don't know. I like to say that I'm kind of missing the fan gene, which is actually I've learned very helpful in my line of work. Where I don't, totally. there's not a lot of celebrities that I get super jazzed about. I mean, there's some, um, but, you know, I guess it's actually really funny because I, when I first started working, I didn't really consider myself to be a pop culture person or um, certainly not an internet culture person because that didn't really exist at the time. But over time, I really realized that it was something I was really passionate about and super interested in. But I did find kind of mainstream celebrity reporting to be kind of boring. 
um, you know, just kind of the, you know, talking about random celebrities and what they were doing. Um, I don't know. When I was in journalism school and right afterwards, it didn't really appeal to me. But I really, really consumed influencers and bloggers. And there were some of them where I really did stand. Some of people I'm just extremely fascinated by. Um, I, I don't, I hate follow some people, but like, I don't bully anyone. You know, I never was like a hater. Right. <laughs> um, and it was just something that was really interesting to me. And I think it just took me working at BuzzFeed and really being in this culture of experimentation where they really encouraged us to write about anything that we possibly could want to write about that we thought other people were interested in that made me be, oh, maybe I should write about this. And in kind of a weird full circle way, it led me back into reporting on traditional celebrities in a way that interests me, Um, which, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not my full time job. But now, you know, I am, you know, working in the culture space for a long time. So, you know, talking to like traditional celebrities, reality stars, um, as well as influencers and celebrities. But I feel like I only found my way back to that because I was so interested in bloggers and, you know, that form of celebrity, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I guess better than like being a fan, the way you describe yourself in your book that I deeply relate to is that you self-identify as nosy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, a voyeur, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's just something about me that wants to know like the inner workings of People. And I think that's why I really have always flocked to influencers. Because one of the things that I think people don't realize is influencers like cracked open celebrity in a way. They mm-hmm. made celeb, they forced celebrities to be open and to share themselves. Like Reese mm-hmm. Witherspoon announcing her divorce in her own words on Instagram would have never happened in a million years right. if there weren't bloggers and influencers. And maybe that's what I found kind of boring about traditional celebrities. You know, again, when I was, you know, back in the early 2010s, when I was, you know, kind of coming up in journalism, um, was they just didn't give you anything. But bloggers gave you everything, you know, sometimes to their own detriment. But they've really shared so much. And, you know, I'm the type of person where, like, if I'm sitting behind you in a movie, I'm going to, like, I can't help myself. I'm going to look over your shoulder and, like, read your text messages. That's just, like, who I am. <laughs> and so, like, I'm just interested in people. Um, and now, every time I go to a movie, people are, people, if they listen to this podcast, are going to be like, wow, get this freak away from me. But, you know. In front of you on I'm in my 30s. I'm in, my thir- I'm in my 30s now. You know, I got to own my shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I. I relate to being deeply curious about other people's lives for no other reason than like I just like to be led into other people's worlds, hear what they think, see what they live like. Um, and I think in the book you did a you there was a helpful um delineation of like different types of influencers that I think explain the arc of the 2010s to now really well, where you kind of explain blogger versus like content creator. Uh, versus what we now refer to as an influencer. But also, I forget, because this is not in my realm of interest, how like YouTube and vlogging is a huge part of like this story. But like, I never watched dudes playing pranks on YouTube. I never watched Vine, so on and so forth. And um, can you speak a bit to how like you see 
the uh, pipeline of like kind of the blogger static photo type influencer versus like, and I believe you referred to uh, their kind of currency as sustainability or consistency versus like virality uh, in a video sense and how those kind of moved through the past decade. Yeah, that was something that was really interesting to me once I did start to take this seriously as something that I wanted to cover in my job, because when people were covering online celebrity in general in, let's say, the mid 2010s through, you know, 2018, 2019, they were almost exclusively covering those YouTubers. And it was so not relatable to me because exactly like you, I never got into YouTube. I never followed YouTubers. Um, I don't know. It just wasn't something I was interested in. And, but I voraciously read blogs and I was obsessed with blogs and obsessed with Instagram. And this crazy thing was, so was everyone I knew in my real life, you know, not like media friends, media people in New York, but like my friends from college, my friends from you know, growing up, my friends from the city, like we all followed these people. And honestly, I had this kind of light bulb moment where I had been covering this type of celebrity and I had been some covering mostly YouTubers. You know, there was this real push, I would say around 2018 to cover like Jake Paul and all of these big YouTubers and like beauty vloggers, beauty, like be- uh, MUAs or whatever. Um, they were yeah, yeah, so yeah. huge and they were super famous and they were starting to get this like mainstream fame. And I kind I just found them kind of boring and I still don't really understand why, but we'll get into it in a sec, the delineation that I found. Um, but I was on a plane on the way to a bachelorette party in Charleston and as one we of, all have been at one point. Yes, as we as we a universal experience. And I remember so clearly my friend's friend, who you know I'm also friendly with, we're all on this plane together, and she whips around and goes, Oh my god, you guys, something navy had her baby. And this whole group of girls, like 15 girls, all were like, Oh my god, what'd she name it? What's it look like? This was her second baby. Um, Esme. And right. It was kind of this light, it sounds silly, but it was kind of this light bulb moment to me where I said, there is a group of people who we're not serving and it's my people. Like it's the people that I am. And so then that was where I really started to kind of experiment and see, you know, were people interested in these like bloggers? Um, But back to your question. So the delineation that I make in the book and the delineation that I've made in my reporting is... There are two distinct types of content creators who came out of the 2010s. Um, The first, I call them video creators in the book. I think sometimes people call them creators or content creators. And those are people who came from Vine, um, YouTube. Uh, The big ones, you know, back in this period were, you know, Lele Pons or Lily Singh or Uh, Grace Helbig was a big one who I think has kind of fallen off. I don't really know what happened to her. Um, The Paul brothers. uh, Tana Monjou was super big back in the day. Um, And these people were really chasing virality. And it was all about views in the video medium. And so what this meant was 
people got big on YouTube from making these videos that went super viral and kind of creating this almost TV-like reality show experience for their viewers. And separately, we have influencers, which is this is how I use influencers in the book, which are people who are almost creating a magazine-style experience. So if you Mm -hmm. think of YouTubers as TV, then this is Vogue or Vanity Fair or Glamour, um, where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot more written word. You know, we're talking about um, visual, you know, photos, um, just kind of, you know, that magazine-style experience. And what I see as a big difference is a lot of influencers aren't necessarily chasing viral fame because there's really no way to go truly viral on Instagram, really. I mean, you can have a blog post that goes viral, and I think some people did, and you can go viral on Pinterest. But, you know, you can have a post blow up on Instagram, but, like, it just doesn't have the same viral sharing thing that a YouTube or Twitter does. Um, And so what influencers were seeking more than kind of these big numbers and big viral moments was a sustained relationship where you, they might have half the followers of people on YouTube, but they have people coming back to them every single day. And they have people who want to buy things because they recommend them. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the, the distinction I see. And, you know, things are definitely different now. I think TikTok has really kind of made it so a lot of people are kind of doing a little bit of everything, which I think is really interesting. Um, but that especially, that dichotomy was this really present um, when I started to report on influencers and, you know, when I started to do the book. It, it's almost like um, the popularity of like the vlog squad, David Dobrik and co or the Paul brothers, like a lot of the video creators. When, when I would see their numbers Relative to the spaces I participated in, it was almost that confusing thing where you're told that Two and a Half Men or Big Bang Theory are the highest rated, most popular shows, and you don't actually know anybody who watches them, but they're theoretically most popular amongst the mainstream. It was kind of that sort of thing where I, it, it still is hard for me to even understand their popularity and how I can be so out of that space. Whereas bloggers that are ubiquitous to me, I'll realize, oh, they have like 150,000 followers versus like 20 million. But to me, everybody knows who, you know, like uh, Grace Atwood is or like, you know what I mean? Like bloggers that have been in your ether for a while that I know like my friends and I follow. But um, anyway, I think that uh, that 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 delineation kind of helped me even understand why growth is so hard and why we're so invested in these people. Because it almost is hard to now like get into new bloggers, new long-term influencers. I'm kind of super invested in the ones I've been around forever because you, I consistently participate in their life. And over time, you experience things with them, you learn things about them, you kind of get invested. And it's hard to do that in a day-to-day passing Instagram story because it's not as sticky as a viral video. So you kind of have to be long haul as a consumer to even care. And uh, it, that helped me understand like why growth on Instagram and stuff anymore feels so incredibly difficult versus why short form video is always going to make people famous much, much faster. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's several reasons why I think that's the case. 
One is that YouTube really made their creator stars in a way that Instagram didn't and, you know, blogs didn't. Um, But I think that there is just kind of a weird, like, I just think that the video medium does lend itself to virality because, you know, you're seeing, you know, it's, it's less of an investment, you know, seeing a viral video on, on TikTok and watching it for five seconds, you know, that counts as a view, but you know, where bloggers and influencers really make their bread and butter is that I love Grace Atwood, for example, I'm going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. I will say though, that I have found new people. I feel like I find new people all the time. But the interesting thing is a lot of the people that I find and end up following pretty closely are people who have been in the game for a while who I just didn't know about before. Um, yeah. Once I, I feel like once I entered my my 30s and my more adult era, I started getting hooked on all of these um, Connecticut mom women who were like around my same age, mm, like yeah. Mackenzie Horan, uh, Julia from Lemon Stripes, um, Kelly in the City um sienna jane um and they were people that i have not followed for a very long time but i'm very invested in now um and that's the interesting thing about tiktok is i have found a lot of fashion and lifestyle creators who i really like on tiktok but then i just follow them on instagram so i don't know if that makes me a millennial (laughs) Um, that's a a good point there's this one girl yeah there's this one girl who's She's a lot younger than me, but she has two kids. And I really became addicted to her when I was on maternity leave because she did this like these like extremely soothing day in the life videos that I just really liked. Um, And she has really good fashion where she's, you know, Gen Z, but attainable. I'm like, I could could wear that. Um, Yeah. And I follow her on Instagram now, but like I would never I don't follow her on TikTok. I would never follow her on TikTok. So yeah, I think it's it's interesting. interesting. I guess I take that back to a degree because I I think that depending on life phase and depending on what content you're looking for, that will probably kind of inspire you to seek out new people. And I definitely have been seeking out more mom content than I was previously. I don't know. I I thought the point you brought up about YouTube and uh, I'd say this about TikTok too, supporting their creators was a really important point. Uh, it almost seems like some platforms understood that the success of their platform was on the backs of these like you know stars. And Instagram, it almost like has always actively worked against its own creators and and kind of made it a more convoluted space to succeed than it has helped them. Do you think that contributes to I know you've talked about this, and I agree, like why, you know, we we'll see Alex Earl at a Met Gala before we'll ever see like a Blair Edie of Atlantic Pacific, who's like a fashion icon on like Instagram and in the blog verse. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple of factors. I think again, video lends itself a lot better to being more famous. You know, if someone is a YouTuber, I think they probably have a better shot of like Jake Paul getting on a Disney show than a blogger. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think the platforms really had a lot to do with it, especially because YouTube, YouTube is obviously not perfect, but one thing that they have always really cared about going back to like 2010, 2011 is making their creators feel special 
and giving them a direct line to make money off the platform. So YouTube has always been very supportive of creators where they gave them special privileges, a special, you know, special tech support. There was, you know, these little trainings they could go to. They very much hyped up their creators in press releases. Um, They sent their creators little plaques when they reached a million subscribers, which sounds so silly, but actually like people love plaques (laughs) and people love feeling important. (laughs) And, you know, in in the mid-2010s, YouTube was putting their big creators on billboard ads in New York City. And, you know, by name saying, this is YouTube, like Lily Singh and Hannah Hart, they are YouTube. And Mm -hmm. Instagram took basically the completely opposite approach, which was, we are a platform. What happens on our platform, if you would like to use our platform to make money, that is your choice, but we are not involved in it. And that, I think, did have an impact on how famous people got um along with you know the other factors i mentioned but i i don't think i don't think that instagram has ever really understood why people were popular on instagram which you know Mm. is kind of a controversial take i guess and i think they would disagree with that but even when they did in 2020 21 launched their big creator focused mission where you know they went all in on creators they really you know started to offer all of these support to creators and they really tried to get creators to come and invest in instagram they primarily focused on young people and video creators because they saw the rise of tiktok um and i think for a lot of influencers that was kind of a slap in the face because it forced them to make things in order to get rewarded that they didn't feel were organic to their brands. Yeah. Um, But I think the biggest thing that kind of illustrates this point is that you could have 2 million followers on Instagram. And if your account gets flagged for something and gets taken down, you have the exact same level of tech support that any of us have. And like, yeah, I think people hear that and they say, oh, whatever, you know, who cares? But you think about it like that's actually insane. That's like showing up to your job and not being allowed in and having to email like support at Condé Nast, you know, not having any. And, you know, um, this was really a really interesting example of this was Emily Gemma, who's a pretty big blogger. She's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, She has like a million ish followers on Instagram. Her account got taken down for some X, Y, Z reason. And it was down for like three weeks. And she had was just emailing like literally help at Instagram and was post having her friends post like, please, like someone help me at Instagram like and that's insane because she had deals with huge clients yeah that she was contractually obligated to post and so what do you do in that situation like that's really crazy like that's like if you know my articles couldn't be posted on line and I had no way to 
do it. Like that's just it's just it's so insane. Um so yeah, I think I think that approach really did make an impact on how people talk about, you know, because most of the time people when people talk about influencers, they don't really talk about, you know, bloggers, really. I mean, mm-hmm. now they talk about TikTokers, um, before they really talked about YouTubers. So I mean, now it is truly Alex Earl's world and we're just living in it. Did you see the Airbnb situation? <laughs> no, tell me. She, her and her, like 10 of her friends, they just graduated from University of Miami. A couple of them are influencers. They went to, they booked a house in Positano and it was a scam. And so they're oh, like, we're stranded in Positano. Yes, 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 and yes, then yes, Airbnb yes. swept in and gave them like the sickest villa. Yeah. And I just, she's an interesting example of a person who, even like the people that grew pretty fast, your Charlie's, your Addison's, your whatever, like I think experienced such high growth and such a disproportionate amount of hate and like the, their pl- it got murky fast and they withdrew kind of quickly. Alex just seems to be soaring and people genuine, genuinely like her. And I think the analytics of even the uh, get ready with me video, it's just like a really interesting thing that I think as a millennial, I'm like, we've been doing this for ages. Uh, oh, I know. <laughs> you know, I know. Ever since beauty gurus. And but it's kind of, yeah, made its way back to where people feel like they're talking to a friend. I mean, Gen Z is really I think that they're taking the mold that the first influencers built and really running with it and doing some really cool stuff. Like a lot of the videos on TikTok among lifestyle influencers, especially are this really interesting mix of like a blogger and an influencer where you do want to keep coming back and you do want to keep seeing their stuff and their fashion and shop with them. But they're doing a really interesting mix of Substack and Instagram and their videos are get ready with me's and day in the lives, but they're like ASMR and like aspirational in a way that I feel like YouTube never really was. YouTube is just very much like I'm filming everything. Um, yeah. And I'm way more into TikTok videos than I was ever into YouTube, probably for that reason. Um, but I don't know. I'm kind of like, okay, what's the next big platform going to be? Because TikTok is very much so mainstream curious. now. Um, and I mean, what, we're probably like three or four years away from the next big platform where it makes these crazy stars and, you know, all of that. Maybe I'll have to wait till Generation Alpha for that, but I don't know. People made so much TikTok, like people made so much fun of TikTok for the longest time, kind of treating it as it was musically. And it is interesting how eventually people just started taking it seriously and, you know, celebrities got on board three years later and acted like they were the first there. But um, I know. I guess to get back to your um, book. OK, what is so interesting about this book is that you. It, it's not just about your thoughts, commentary, POV, your experience covering influencers. You shadow real life subjects and. Can you tell people why you chose to do that and who you chose and why for the format of the book? Yeah, I've tried to be really intentional about who I chose because I wanted to give different experiences. Um, I didn't want to just follow three people who had a very similar experience. So when I was first kind of deciding who I wanted to follow, I knew that I wanted to only do a few people. I felt like I had when 
I first started talking about doing the book, I had just read the book Three Women um, by Lisa Taddeo, which was a very big book at the time. And it's a book about three women and just about their lives and experiences. And it's very, very good. Um, And I really had this like vision of three women for influencers. And now my book is definitely not as like literary or in-depth as three women, but I I tend to think as a journalist that you get a way better insight into things if you just tell a few people's story rather than try to like jam in a bunch of people's stories. Um, so that was kind of the vision. And then I was like, kind of off the top, you know, I have to do someone in the like Mormon mommy blogger sphere, even if they're no longer doing mommy bloggers. But like, to me, that was such a core part of how this ecosystem developed um, that I knew I wanted to do something like that. And then I, I really wanted to do someone who was very like successful and very, you know, well-known influencer. Um, and then for my third person, I wanted to do someone who I felt like could really tell, show an impact of this industry that I think people don't think about. And I'm kind of interested to see what people think about the book because I think a lot of people, this is just my guess reading books, Narc and GOMI, but I think people are going to say like, oh, this isn't indicative of a real influencer experience. But like influencers are in so many different facets of society and the money and freedom that being an influencer gives you is really powerful. so I, I thought about doing a woman I had followed named Myrna Valerio, who I knew of because she was on the cover of Runner's World a few years before that. And she had really made this name for herself as a plus size runner um, and was really kind of making this really cool profile for herself where she was helping athletic wear companies and athletic companies change the way they viewed running and fitness. And I was like, I bet she has a really cool story to tell. And I knew she had become a full-time influencer. And I was really taken by her story of how she was someone who has gotten so much freedom out of being a content creator Mm -hmm. and has really been able to make real change at places like Merrill and Lululemon. Um, And she was a teacher and now she owns her own business she travels all over the world you know she gives like lectures she's just like a really cool dynamic person um so I asked her and she said yes and that was really exciting um and then I talked to I had like kind of a wish list of people for the other the other two um and eventually decided to go with Caitlin Covington um who graciously agreed to do it who is very much you know an all-star influencer who has been in it from day one um and you know I think has this really nice balance of like I think she was someone who people could relate to even if they didn't think that they could because she makes everything seem so nice and perfect and like it doesn't I think she makes things look like she doesn't try but she's actually a very cunning businesswoman and she's really built something incredible for herself So I think I wanted to kind of dive in and see, you know, this is someone who I think people look at her feed and everything's very beautiful and very pretty. And she's been doing this for so long and she's very successful at it. And I think people kind of 
dismiss her, honestly. And I kind of wanted to show what her life was actually like um, and how hard she really works and just kind of see, you know. Poster child for for like the memes of Christian girl Autumn, just so people can yes, place her. Yes, like yes. Southern curls and pearls. Like you, you've seen her. You know who she is. Nicest head of brunette blown out hair since Sophie from Ladies of London. Like she's just you. You know of her. She's like a great ubiquitous kind of quintessential blogger character. And she's almost like I don't want to say like an archetype, but like she is. And I I really wanted to dive in and explore who she was under the archetype. And what I found was she is just like a very dynamic person and she's very smart and she's very intentional. And I think like that was something that I really wanted to like through her story, really dive into like how none of this is just by accident. I think it's probably my main thesis. Mm, And then drum roll guys, the Beths are going to be stoked about your third (laughs) choice, by the way. This is, people are very interested in this one. Yes, yes. Um, So I really wanted to find someone from, like I said, like the Utah Mormon mom world. And honestly, I wanted to find someone who didn't have a typical story and who had dealt with kind of the downsides of this industry. And so I ended up talking to Shannon Bird who is a very like famous in some corners of the internet influencer who, and she is just a very wears her heart on her sleeve. She's like an original Mormon mommy blogger, but she doesn't put up this like facade. She's very real people, you know, either love her or hate her. She's very divisive character on the internet. Um, And I've talked to a couple of people and, you know, I I love everyone in the book equally, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people who said I was really struck by her story. Um, And I was really, too, to be honest, you know, she has a really interesting story um, where she really fell in by accident into doing this and has really been made, you know, she's made mistakes. She's shared good times. She's shared bad times. And she's really faced a lot of negative consequences for her choice to do this, you know, both in her personal life and professional life. and she's also like so fun to talk to and such an open book about everything that I really, I really enjoyed getting to know her. And um, the book opens with like my favorite experience ever, which was I went to go see her in Salt Lake City in the suburbs. And she took me on a Mormon blogger house tour, which you'll have to read all about. <laughs> yes, I love that we begin in the the mecca of the Mormon mommy blogger Salt Lake City, I had this similar experience to you when I went there. You know, went to Swig, drove around mm-hmm. the Burbs, I marveled at, you know, the people wearing a full strip lash on a Tuesday. Everyone mm-hmm. was so beautiful, and um, I I feel like I mean, as you and everyone listening knows, like I'm also fascinated by uh, people from that area and. Uh, religious women that are very much put in boxes and think they're they're doing the right thing. And then we watch them grow up on the internet to cut and kind of come into their own. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a lot of clunkiness that comes along with that. Um, and I think Shannon bird, I mean, she's a character that I know from her controversies. Like I don't follow that consistently, but I, that's what's like must be hard for her is like I think of uh, you cover the story about the formula in the book, the baby formula and the police officer. 
But I think a lot of people's point of entry to her was in um, Oaxaca when she uh, assembled a booby trap at a five-star resort and then asked her brand manager for a machete in a cab because she was so scared. To So it just be, she's, to your point about heart on your sleeve, like there's literally no filter like any passing thought or thing she'll put up there oftentimes to her own detriment. And she's just been a really polarizing character over the years. And I was dying to hear the inside scoop about what she was like in real life, because I will say in my experience, when I meet influencers, 99% of the time, I really like them. They're really nice people. There's something infectious about them that translates through the screen. And that's probably why they do well. And I'm usually pretty impressed. And I'm curious to hear like, yeah, so you arrive at Shannon Bird's house. Like, what was it like? I grew up with a very crafty mom that always had activities planned and we were always doing super stimulating stuff. And now that I'm going to be a parent, I'm kind of like, well, for fun, I like scroll into the deep and watch Netflix. So, I, you know, how do I provide my kid that experience? This is why I'm excited about the brand KiwiCo. Actually, a lot of you Beths told me you love and use the subscription because I was showing you their newborn kid on Patreon. But basically, they create fun projects for curious minds. And it's a solution for busy parents who want fun educational activities for their kid or kids. So KiwiCo is basically a really cool subscription box for your kids that offers multiple lines of fun and enriching projects that are designed to spark creativity, innovation, and learning. They're developmentally appropriate projects for every child and interest level from newborn to teens. I was just even perusing their website. They have the cutest like water and sand sensory table for summer. I want to introduce my nephews and niece to like my culture because they have this pixel art light block, a light box that reminds me of a 90s light bright. But I just think it's cool that you can pick from robotics or playtime or physics or chemistry, electronics. And if your kid has an interest that, that this might spark or expand their knowledge of, it's a really good use of time that they could get lost in for hours. I was looking at a build your own pinball machine in the physics section. I also think the yummy crate that explores the science of cooking from ages six to 14 is a really great idea, among others. Since I'll have a youngster, a newborn, I have something called the panda crate where you explore and discover kind of some of the basic building blocks like black and white cards, I think, before their ability to see color develops. I don't know a lot about newborns. Again, not a woman in STEM. However, I might have been if it were STEAM because KiwiCo has developed over 2,000 projects in STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And you simply select a crate or take their quiz to find the perfect match, pick a delivery plan, and watch your kids' excitement when they get their crates in the mail. As a curious person who loved a creative project, I just think this is a cool company, and each crate comes with multiple projects that will keep them busy for hours. They've been creating awesome family experiences for the last 10 years with over 40 million crates delivered and over 20,000 five-star reviews. Just peruse the website. It's really fun. And if you want to redefine play with KiwiCo, right now, get 50% off your first month. Crates start at just $14 per month, plus free shipping on any crate line at KiwiCo. Promo code be there in five. That's 50% off your first month, plus free shipping at kiwico.com. Promo code be there in five. KiwiCo.com. Promo code be there in five. You know, I get sent a lot of like memes and videos that say giving birth is the equivalent of running a marathon. And thank you. I do send them all to my husband. But I also think about being pregnant and building a company from scratch to take on the multivitamin aisle. And I'm like, this is something I could never have accomplished, especially not in my current state. And that's the true story of Ritual's founder, Kat Schneider, who started Ritual because she couldn't find a prenatal she could trust. And I've now been taking it for years and still do every day. As a matter of fact, I might pause this and take mine now. I love Ritual because they have high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. So you can trust what you're putting in your body when it matters most. It's an all-in-one formulation with choline and clinically studied methylated folate to support baby's neural tube development during pregnancy, vegan omega-3 DHA to support baby's brain development during pregnancy, and 
depending on the vitamin you get, they have like a citrus or a mint essence capsule that's easy on the stomach. You can take them when you want with or without food. And the and they don't make me sick because their delayed release capsules are designed for optimal absorption. And I just think it's pretty incredible that and <laughs> considering all the rules and like care and thought you put into what you put in your body during this time I'm in, it's crazy to me to think that there weren't prenatals out there with a fully transparent and traceable supply chain. And I'm grateful to Kat for going on this journey when I certainly wouldn't have had the energy for it. And uh why and uh yeah, I'm I'm a ritual devotee. I pay with my own money. So why settle for a multivitamin when why settle for a multivitamin you're not hundred percent sure about? Ritual was built on trust, so you know it's the real deal. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash be there in five to start ritual or add essential for women prenatal to your subscription today. So exactly what you said where I was almost struck by how normal she was. And I talk about that hmm. in the book and how much this doesn't define her in her day-to-day life. You know, we talked about the formula thing and I, you know, talked about that has had a real impact on her life. Um, she had this pretty big controversy where she was really, I don't know, if, I hate saying canceled, but, you know, she got a lot of hate um, and there was you know, some consequences in her real life for it. Um, but for the most part, her life is so normal in a way that I think people wouldn't expect. And I felt very comfortable hanging out with her and her husband, Dallin, and, you know, very much like, you know, I think people really build these internet people up with their minds that they think if they met them, their life would be crazy. And like, it wasn't, it was really chill and really normal. Um, and she was not, she was a very easy person to talk to. Um, and you know, she's just, she's very much like she, yeah, she has no filter. She'll tell you everything. Um, and I think one of the things that I really wanted to do was to honor her story in a way because I feel like that is kind of what has gotten her in trouble in the past is she doesn't have the like the she doesn't try to put up a front and I think Mm -hmm. that people just like to tear people like that down a little bit so I really tried to like you know figure out who she really was deep down and um you know figure out why she wanted to do this and what her her point of doing all of this was and why she's still on the internet, which, you know, she she isn't on the internet as much as she used to be. Um, and I was really shocked that Dallin seems to not care at all. Like, he could not be more unbothered by all of this. And that was kind of like, at times I felt silly being like, well, doesn't it bother you that people on GOMI say X, Y, and Z? And he was just like, no, with this air of like, why would I care to the point where I was like, why do I care? (laughs) You know, like this doesn't seem to even impact you. I mean, I don't know. I have a hard time shutting off. um, I have a hard time shutting off like, you know, people criticizing me on the internet, which doesn't happen all the time. But, you know, if people write mean comments or whatever, like it's hard to you know, yeah. you know, you have a book coming out. Like, it's really scary to, like, open yourself up to people in that way. Um, but I think that's kind of, you know, even with 
Um, you know, we saw her like Rachel Parcell lives in like, to me, she's like this big celebrity, but it is so normal. And I have to say, I've had the same experience with many influencers as well, not YouTubers. Um, and I have not had the same experience with most celebrities. I will say, um, there's a marked difference with how much I usually enjoy spending time with influencers over most celebrities. I think that, um, it is kind of shocking. You mentioned like the birds lack of, uh, security considering the amount of attention on them at certain points. They're like, I think the normalcies a lot of these people have, despite having such big internet presences, I find shocking. Like they still, yeah. Cause to me, they're so famous, but they still like live about out and about in their town, take their kids to school. Like they don't have security. They don't necessarily always have like publicists. Like they don't have this insularity that a mainstream celebrity has to kind of protect them from a lot of this stuff. And I think that the Mormon mommy bloggers can be particularly interesting because I think they have to learn their own um, naivete and, and insularity in their community the hard way on the internet by being so grown in this one specific world. They're not even considering outside perspectives when gauging what to put on the internet and they have to figure out what doesn't I think Shannon had to figure out what's not going to land. Well, the hard way, I think even, you know, you telling the story of her calling the police when she didn't have formula. Um, and she basically is like, never even crossed my mind why this would be odd. There's a police officer that like hangs out on my street and I know him. And it just was interesting to hear her side of it because I remember when that happened being like, Oh my God, that there's, so many reasons people cannot just call and leverage law enforcement like that. There are so many right. reasons like you shouldn't be wasting their time. You're risking like, yeah, CPS who ultimately came like it just that story was shocking to so many people. And the fact that it just was so normal to her, I think, speaks to like she had to learn these lessons out loud because uh, it just wasn't coming natural to her to have that discernment. Oh, absolutely. I think. I think that's 100% true. And I think, you know, I think a lot, I think, you know, I think about that when I, there's this very growing conversation that I've been trying to have for a long time. Like I've published a lot of articles about this where like, what are we going to do about kids on the internet? What are kids on the internet going to think when they grow up and all of their pictures on the internet? Um, And it's really not taken very seriously. um, But When it is written about, it's very, very harsh on the parents, which I 100% understand. But I will caveat that when people like Shannon started blogging, they had no idea any of this was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like when Design Mom started her blog, she could have never seen Alex Earl coming. You know what I mean? Like there was just no blueprint that we knew that internet fame was going to become what it was. And I'm not saying that there aren't, there's a ton of really relevant issues that I really hope, you know, we start to really take seriously as a society, you know, namely, I think children should be getting some sort of compensation from the paid work they're doing for their parents' Instagrams or YouTubes or whatever. And I think it can be exploitative, especially, um, you know, if the parents aren't careful. Um, But I think that's something that 
you know, we were all very naive, you know, mm-hmm. like we, we had no idea people who were blogging had no idea that if they started writing blogs about their children, that their children would become famous. And I think that's something that you can kind of say, you know, if this, if my book is truly trying to be a chronicle of the issues plaguing this first generation of influencers, I think we have to look at it through that context. Um, And, you know, I think the industry is already changing so much um, with this next generation and they're really building upon it um, in good ways and bad. And I do think that, you know, if I were to go on TikTok tomorrow and start a TikTok of my baby, like I would know what I was doing and, you know, I probably would hold a little more responsibility. but yeah, I don't know. I think one thing that I thought was interesting with Shannon that I actually didn't, I had fallen off by this point. I mean, it's kind of like, I can totally see how you get to know somebody in person, understand their humanity, their character a bit better. And they're more, you know, perhaps more well-adjusted that they come across on the internet. But it is interesting reading about her kind of repeating history and, and, like to follow up that whole period of time where she experienced this fallout and not know that a GoFundMe for her boob job reconstruction wouldn't go over well. That's mm-hmm. shocking. Like, are we learning? Are we really thinking through what we're putting out there? I, it, there's kind of this interesting, um, I don't know how to explain it. I guess it was just a little bit fascinating to me that she was more reflective and introspective than I thought, but also, seem to be like participating in a lot of patterns where maybe that attitude of like, I don't care what people think does harm you at a point, because I think there's a balance of listening to well-intentioned feedback, weeding out the noise and approaching it going forward more strategically because it is your career after all, you know? So I can definitely see uh, it as a defense mechanism for sure. Um, you know, yeah. I don't, people are going to hate me no matter what. So I'm going to post whatever I want, or I'm going to troll them a little bit, or I'm going to like mm. poke the bear. Um, I think there's definitely a little bit of that there. Um, but I think also like when it's your platform and you've built it, you feel like you should have the right to do what you want sometimes for good or bad. Um, and I think that kind of comes into it as well. Um, yeah, but I don't know. It's really, really hard to be a public figure on the internet right now. Um, I mean, I'm sure you know. Yeah. And you examine that by uh, talking about, which I think was a really seismic period of time for influencers talking about 2020. And, you know, it's like we went from only kind of taking what these people were putting on the internet at face value. It was all very surface level we were just kind of voyeurs in their life. And it was almost this whiplash of um, minimizing the influence of people that were influencers to then demanding that they use their platforms a specific way because they're so influential when talking about public health, misinformation, social justice, so on and so forth. 2020 was a very odd time to be a person on the internet. Um, and I thought you did a re- really good job of kind of explaining how nuanced this is where and showing different sides of it. And you've also pointed out a trend of that I noticed, too, is that this started to taper off when we got to like Ukraine and Russia, Israel, Palestine. There did come a point where 
we insisted influencers insert themselves for so long, but then when they were speaking out of turn or too high level or in memefied, bite-sized content about these huge pressing global issues, it was like, actually, wait a second. So it's kind of interesting how it's evolved. It is really interesting. I think the, that followers did a bit of a self-correction, which I think was necessary because I wholeheartedly believe that if you have a platform you need to stand up against, you know, racial injustice, like you should say what your beliefs are. Like that's part of following you. Right. And I am very much like it's up to the follower. Like I don't see it as like a canceler or a canceling, but like, you know, if someone comes out who I brought their products and they're like, actually, you know, I love Trump. I'm like, okay, well, I don't love Trump. And so I don't really want to give you my money anymore. And to me, that's very like black and white. Um, yeah, but it did kind of reach- with who you follow. Right. And like, that makes me feel good. And but I also, you know, if my local coffee shop put up a huge Trump sign, I probably wouldn't go there anymore either. You know, like, it's just, you know, that's pretty easy. But it did kind of turn into this thing where people were just arguing so much, much among themselves, like everyone needs to respond to every single issue. And at the end of the day, influencers are not qualified to comment on Israel, Palestine. They're like, just not. Um, And I think it's great if people do, you know, want to share their opinion, but I don't think that we need to hold people's feet to the fire. Um, But it's also interesting because this is not just an influencer issue. This is like a celebrity public figure issue across the board um, where, you know, it really is something where people are expecting that people share their values. And I do, I really think it is a net good. Um, I, you know, I think especially with, you know, this is probably selfish, but especially with issues that I really care about and feel really passionate about, like, you know, gun control and gun violence. Like, I just have no patience for people who, you know, don't support gun control. Um, But I also think, like, it kind of gets turned into this whole thing where it's like, you're being canceled or you're not. And it's just, to me, it's a very simple, easy thing um, that I think the internet, you know, people just argue with each other and then it kind of goes out of thing. But that's, that's the thing. And that's what I think a lot of influencers are kind of realizing. Um, there was this real push to get as many followers as possible for a long time. And I think it was really to the detriment of influencers because, you know, if you have 5 million followers and you lose a million followers because, you know, you come out and say, I'm voting for Biden or whatever, you know, that's like, that to me is good for your brand. And you, I think a lot of influencers are coming around to the idea that like, I want to have a hundred thousand people who support me for me and my values and what I care about rather than a million people who, you know, maybe don't or don't really get me, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And brands are really coming around to that as well. Um, So I think like, I don't know. I think that's like kind of the sweet spot where influencers have found where like, you know, these are my values. This is what I care about. This is what I'm going to share. Um, And, you know, if you don't if you don't like it, you don't have to follow me. And that's okay because that's not, you know, the end all be all of my life. Yeah, I think there's a lot of freedom to be found in just sharing your values, your point of view and the issues you care about when you can, because 
then you're attracting and repelling. And I think people are a lot more antagonistic trying to figure out where you stand Mm -hmm. than they are when they know. Because when I've thought about it, I'm like, I don't, I think when I'm seeing a lot of chatter online about who hasn't posted or talked about what, um, I find that I don't think people want to know your take. They want to know that you care. They want Mm -hmm. to know that like you like them are carrying this tension of this really, you know, intense climate we're in where every day there's a story compromising somebody's right, somebody's life, somebody's well-being. And it's like when you're glossing over it and living in this aspirational world and seem unbothered, you just you're like, how can you not care? You just want them to acknowledge it. And I think that people think sometimes they need to be producing like dissertations. Um, but I, I find that once you want, once you know somebody's values, you're not nitpicking about when they do and don't post and you give them a bit of the benefit of the doubt because you know that they care. Um, it's just that they might not tell you, be talking about that thing right then. And I think that was kind of a reckoning where people like Caitlin had to be like, no, to be clear, like, I'm not a Trumper. I'm not, you yeah. know, if, if, if you lose followers, like, so be it. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with you. I think that's a really good way to say it. And I think it all boils down to authenticity, which I think is really one of the themes of the book, which is like, how do you stay true to yourself when you're trying to make a business of yourself, which is like kind of the core tension of being an influencer. And I think what followers crave is authenticity. So yeah, totally. I think you know, there are people who have navigated this really beautifully because they have always been very upfront with what they believe. And I think you're 100% right that people, you know, when you do pretend like you, like the real world doesn't affect you, like, I don't know, I'm thinking about, like, just watch the Barbie trailer. If you pretend you're Barbie and you don't live in the real world, people get really angry because I think that's 100% right where it's like, I'm scared. I'm upset. And then I go on Instagram and it seems like you're faking it. And, you know, faking it is kind of a kiss of death for an influencer. You know, you want to be aspirational, but you don't you don't want people to think you live in the real world. And that's why, you know, in the book, I like really try to wrestle with the idea of authenticity and just explore how hard it is to be authentic, because it's really hard to never make a mistake and never say something that rubs people the wrong way. I'm not talking about saying something, you know, cancelable, but just, you know, not come off in a certain snotty way or weird way. Um, 100% of the time, but also be true to yourself in a way that people want to follow. It's very, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, with your, you know, the, even having like this sort of platform, even as a journalist, it's really difficult. Um, you know, to, you know, feel like you're engaging in with your audience in a way that makes sense to you and is authentic to you, but also, you know, makes them feel connected as well. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And I, and I often think it's um, a bit, I think there's something unfair and honestly quite sexist at times, the way we demand um, relatability, the way we police women's behavior on the internet and code it as this, that, or the other and project intentions. Like you just, I feel like the way we scrutinize female creators is just not the same as male creators. And, um, the authenticity and relatability talk, I understand it. And I, but I also people can exist on the internet for different reasons. And I like to follow people whose life is nothing like mine for that reason. And I think it gets confusing when the metrics are about like this person 
needs to agree with and relate to everything I am and everything I stand for. Otherwise, they're out of touch. They're this, they're that. Um, and that, I think, is the exhausting game. But I feel like uh, you talked about this in the parenting chapter where um, what what was it? I guess it was Caitlin. Um, you were talking about the shift from like aspiration to like vulnerability and authenticity and how there's almost this when you decide to be vulnerable, there's this like payoff. I think she talked about uh, like her nose job or something mm -hmm. and she got she was like scared to bring it up and got such positive feedback because people love honesty. But then when she became a, a mom and was revealing more of her day to day, you realize the cost of that vulnerability because it opens up people's opinions, mm -hmm. <laughs> opens up your life to people's opinions. And then when you experience the consequence of of being more open and authentic, it becomes this weird balance of where you're constantly doing these analytics, trying to figure out how to share enough that's true and honest to you, but also not to a point where it's detrimental to your mental health. Um, and yeah, I, that's just a game that I've found interesting over the years is like the true being honest and being so vulnerable is really rewarding and important, but the backlash that comes along with it will make you pull back in two seconds. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, Caitlin's talked about and she really, you know, struggled with was feeling like she shouldn't really have to open herself up to so much scrutiny. Um, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's the kind of sense that I got, which is like, why do I have to show everything? You know, why do I have to give so much of me to this platform? Um, in order to do what I really enjoy doing. Um, and I don't really know, you know, it's hard. And it's really the analogy that I've used in the book is like, it's like walking a tightrope where you're doing something amazing, but it's so easy to fall, you know, and that can be from outside mm -hmm. sources, but it also can be from internal where it's like, I can't give all of myself, you know? Um, and yeah. I think people very much dismiss that where it's like, oh, you know, like you make so much money, you don't do anything. Like it's so easy, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's like that toll is something that people don't really think about. And I, I certainly and would I, not want to do it. <laughs> I, I think that, um, well, I've really liked the, the difference in the characters the, the people rather chosen kind of like a more controversial figure that's, you know, experienced a lot of hate, but has more to her story, the kind of quintessential, you know, cupcakes and cashmere rubric of like your early 2010s blogger. And I loved Mirna's story um, in terms of like being a disruptor, being a person that's like really had meaningful, positive influence and overall had a really positive story. And I thought her and Caitlin's stories next to each other were kind of interesting in that it's almost like the difference of um, a more broad category and the experience of a more niche audience or focused purpose of being an influencer. And yeah. I think um, niche influencers and focused influencers tend to have better experiences than ones that are kind of trying to be everything to anybody who eventually have to whittle it down to like who they actually are like Caitlin did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you come out the gate being like, this is who I am, this is what my content's about, this is, you know, I, I think, um, it is, I don't know, I, I felt is, like their stories were interesting together. It is a lot less, you know, that's what I, I really liked about highlighting Myrna too, was like, 
it is a lot less, I don't know, angsty. You know, when you do have kind of a niche, you can kind of rely more on the niche. Um, And I think that one thing I also wanted to highlight with that is like, everyone's an influencer. If you're a chef, you're an influencer. If you're a journalist, you're an influencer. If you're a runner, you're an influencer. Um, And it's like almost every single career now, there's an influencer component that like you don't necessarily have to do, but like it's really helpful to do, you know? Yeah. Um, if you're a real estate agent, you're an influencer, you know? Um, and I wanted to kind of show how this industry that these women built really did upend almost every other industry in the world. I mean, they're mm-hmm. like influencer lawyers, they're influencer doctors. Um, and you do have to give a lot less of yourself if that's what you do. But, um, it is a really interesting part of the industry. And I think it's it's a part that people, you know, when they kind of bat around the word, they don't really talk about as much. Right, totally. Um, and I do think that you venturing into child privacy is interesting because that's a conversation, I meant to loop back to this earlier, that um, I don't, I feel like wasn't as prevalent until the past year or two. But I even am, as a consumer, am like, oh, should I feel weird that I was like, following and attached to people's kids not in a weird way but just in like a people share their cute family you get you watch them grow up you're like oh i guess this is weird but i don't i don't know that i really even recognize that till the past two years when there's been more discourse about it and um i like what do you think the future of that looks like i know you mentioned you feel strongly about compensation and i i think consent is incredibly important and all the things but um to your point about not knowing better it kind of is like us in college, you know, posting Facebook albums titled The Party Don't Start Till I Walk In. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, taking a two-story beer bong. I didn't understand the immortality of the internet. I thought it would be yeah. in my private circle forever, disappear. You just, you didn't know, you didn't know. And so, yeah, it is, it must be tough for for mom bloggers and stuff that featured their families, their meltdown so heavily that maybe just we're not thinking about the immortality of it. Honestly, like, A counterpoint that I have that is analogous to what you just mentioned is I remember when I was in college, there was this thing going around that's like, don't put pictures of yourself doing a shot off the eye salute on your Facebook page because, you know, you're never going to become a senator or whatever if they find that photo. Your employer is going to go through your Facebook. Your employer is going to go through your Facebook. One of my friends, I remember like their college would flag photos of them on Facebook, like, which did not happen in high school. Yeah. Yeah. And now that's not a thing. Like everyone has the, like, imagine if someone came out with like a celebrity doing an ice luge photo. Like no one gives a shit. No one has ever looked at my Facebook and not to play devil's advocate, but like, some people who are younger do not care about their stuff being on the internet. Some people do. And I don't think that should take away from any of these conversations we're having that are extremely important. But I do think that there's a possibility that some of these blogger kids will grow up and be like, I don't really care. All of my friends are on, like, they don't think about the internet the same way. And Mm, I'm really interested to see how gen alpha or whatever whatever our babies will be in (laughs) what they think as well because it's like 
if everyone has potty training pictures on the internet, then no one does. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I think there's also a big distinction between, you know, if Rachel Parcells kids are on the internet, like, I think they should, if they're in ads or whatever, or whoever's kids, like, she doesn't share intimate private details of their lives where they're embarrassed, at least not in my experience, in following her. And there are people that do that. And I think that's a huge problem. Right. And I think, you know, people with kids with the cameras in their face all the time, that's a huge problem. Account solely based on a kid, that's a huge problem that I don't really agree with. Um, but it might be that, like, if your mom's an influencer, like, one thing that I talked to Shannon about was like, what do your kids like? What do your kids think about their moms being influencers? And she's like, everyone's like half the kids in their classes' moms are influencers, which like again, that's you know oh, that's situational in Mormon world, but like it doesn't even register, you know. Hmm. So I think yeah. that is a possibility among kids, you know, who are featured on their ki- on their parents' accounts, but they're not, you know, being exploited. Um, you know, and I think it might vary by kid, but I think that is a distinct possibility because at the end of the day, like, I don't know, everyone's going to have their entire lives documented on the internet now, you know, everyone. Right. And I think where I get scared is where the co it's like, there's the kid caring about their identity being on the internet. But then you add in the piece where there's like creepy predators and deep fakes and fan accounts for 12 year old girls. And oh, yeah. that's, I think, where I get the most spooked is the idea that like, I think most people consuming the content are like, oh, cute kids, standard family, like whatever, like how you feel about your friend's kids. But to think that they're like weirdos out there and that those th- I can't imagine how terrifying that would be on a parent as a parent oh, to see like a page Absolutely. dedicated to your own kid. So I'm interested to see what like legislation or whatever kind of like forms or if there's going to be like major changes that come along in the industry. But even with what you said about younger people not caring, I think about this a lot with like the vulnerability era where it it was like it was you were almost incentivized to like cry on the Internet to share every mental health issue to process trauma allowed that you maybe hadn't processed yet. And people, young people share with the world things I would have never admitted. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I learned about mental health when I was like 25. Like the name of the game as millennials was to like blend in, go unnoticed. Everything's fine. I just wanted to be like cool and hot and fun. Um, But now it's like you, there's this like currency associated with vulnerability where people are sharing things that when they're very young to the whole world. And even though I know they don't care now, I think about, what it's going to be like, yeah, in 5, 10, 15 years when they're reliving some of their traumas and they felt incentivized to share them before they had really lived through their repercussions. I don't know. That's honestly what you're talking about is one of the ways that I started to think about this. And I, I, I started to wonder the same thing because if you go on TikTok, Gen Z is like, one thing about me, my dad killed my mom. And I'm just like, what the, what? like, <laughs> like, seriously, I'm not exaggerating. Right. And full, full diagnoses. Yeah. All, all the medications they take. All, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be flippant. I've literally seen that TikTok from more than one person on TikTok. And like, 
I almost did a story on it, but then I was like, is this like too, like, do, do they care? Like, is this too millennial? I don't know. Like, I was like, you know, oh my God, look what these young people are doing. But like, they are so open on the internet. Like, way, like you said, way more than I would have ever been or like will be. Um, and that kind of got me thinking, like, yeah, I mean, if everyone's just like sharing every single thing about their life all the time, like, is that just going to be normal? Um, but again, I do think like the two really pillars of this that I would love to see people take seriously and really pass legislation is I do really strongly believe that children, if they're being used regularly in ads on the internet, should be compensated um, in the form of some sort of trust or something so they can, you know, benefit off that. And I do think that um, children should have some sort of restrictions, breaks, but it's it's a really thorny issue, which I get into in the book. But, you know, I think what I also talk about is the worst parts of it are on YouTube and now TikTok where there's, you know, these kids that are being filmed for like 12 hours a day. Um, and that's really, really bad. Oh God, I think, I know. you know, it's a spectrum. Um, but I really strongly feel like this should be addressed. Maybe it will be mm -hmm. now. I don't know. Hope so. <laughs> I thought I could talk about this in the book too, but I, I thought the Micah Stoffer thing was going to really start something and it didn't. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I was glad you brought that up in the book too. Would, did I remember this correctly? Was that your like most read article ever during your time at Buzzfeed? Yeah. Which is really insane because this was after the Facebook crazy BuzzFeed era where we were getting like 10 million views on posts that we'd spent like no time on. Um, yeah, like 8 million people read that story or something like that. Um, it was, it was really big. And I wrote at the time, like I wrote an article, like maybe this will be the catalyst. And then it, it wasn't. Um, but That's I know there, because that was universally seen as so unconscionable and unethical and sick. It was such a shocking story. She talks about it in the book, but also if you don't remember, there was a couple that they were YouTubers. They adopted a son. Was it from China? Mm -hmm. um, and did these, you know, kind of clickbaity vlogs like uh, gotcha day, bringing home son from China. The, the whole thing was exploitative and weird and never sat well, period. But uh, the son had autism spectrum disorder and eventually a lot of things transpired, but he ultimately was placed with a different family and they monetized this child, exploited him when he was young, told the world about everything he was going through and ultimately shared that he was parting ways with their family. And to watch that play out online felt like inhumane. Mm. Yeah, it was super, super bad. Um, and there was so much rhetoric around it that I really thought, because I had written a couple of stories um, you know, little things off and on, um, you know, kind of wondering when there was going to be this reckoning. And I really thought it was going to be like when the quote unquote first generation of blogger kids grew up and if they were unhappy with what had happened, um, or especially, you know, YouTuber, like the early YouTuber families are becoming adults now. Um, so that's going to be really interesting. Um, but then when that happened, I, wrote I was really wondering you know there was so much chatter about it like is this actually going to move the needle 
And to be honest, it really didn't. There was some pushes for legislation in Washington state um, that I think are being revamped right now. Um, but I was kind of poking around the issue before I went on maternity leave last year. And I talked to the um, lawmaker up there who was kind of the hard charger behind it. And she was like, it didn't get picked up. Like it was just like stalling. They were losing momentum. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I am excited that the book is coming out because I've really wanted to write something really long about this for a long time. And I finally <laughs> did. So if you, if you do pick up the book, at least you're getting that <laughs> because that's what I'm, oh gosh, and now yeah. I feel like I can, I don't have to like put that article out there because it's in the book. What were, I just have a couple more questions for you, uh, so I don't keep you too long, but um, what was there anything that you were most surprised to learn by, like, shadowing influencers directly about their real lives? Um, Probably how normal everything was, um, like, how much their fame really does exist in a screen where they can kind of turn mm. it off. Um, I think maybe in a ways that celebrities can't. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the case for someone like Alex Earl or probably not like Charlie D'Amelio. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, like, it is kind of a more normal type of celebrity. Um, yeah, I, I would say probably, probably that. Um, yeah, that's, pro that's probably what I would say. And how do you feel when, do you, I, I don't know why, but on my TikTok, I constantly get these hot take videos with hundreds of thousands of likes that are like, the influencer business model is dying. Influencers are dead as we know it. Influ and I'm like, I really don't think that's the case. How do you, what's your take on if the influencer, influencers are going anywhere? Um, I think they were saying that in 2018 before TikTok existed. So <laughs> I don't, if anything, we are, it's tripled in size, it feels like since then. Um, no, I don't think influencers are going every anywhere. I think the platforms may change, but I think people will always be famous on the internet from now on. Um, you know, I think YouTube's kind of falling off, but you know, Instagram, I'm still on Instagram. I think a lot of people are still on Instagram. Instagram's still the number one place where brands spend their money. Um, but you know, something new could come around, but no, I, I don't, I don't think there's an influencer bubble. And I think people hate influencers so much it's like the kardashians where people everyone says oh i hate the kardashians but if you talk to anyone that works in media the reason we cover the kardashians so much is everyone reads about them everyone any publication you work for they're like top of the charts and it's the same with influencers, where it's like cool and trendy to say the influencer bubble is bursting. I hate influencers. I hate influencers. But everyone watches them and consumes their content. So it's like, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like, get over it and just like yeah. accept it. It's like we're 20, 25 years out for reality TV and we still haven't accepted that like these people are celebrities. So it's like, I don't get it personally. Right. It's like your your opinion or approval doesn't legitimize these people's jobs, your engagement with them does. So exactly. hate, follow, cringe, follow, act to follow, anything you're doing, the fact that you're watching is a case for their relevance. <laughs> um, and lastly, I would ask you just like, what do you hope people take away uh, 
from the book. I thought you ended it so beautifully. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I hope that people get a better understanding of what it's actually like to be an influencer. And I hope people start examining their own relationships with influencers. I think one thing that's really interesting that I've thought about a lot when I was writing was just how much I relied on people on the internet to guide me in my life and how much of my decisions were impacted by them. Um, you know, from as small as wearing an outfit to, you know, I'm sure, you know, when you're getting ready to have a baby, like I really relied on them for everything to guide me in a way that, you know, I think I didn't really feel like I needed to read baby books. I just, I had influencers. And I think that was just Mm -hmm. like, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, what does it mean for for us as a culture that we have really shifted from taking the advice of a few select power players in, you know, the media in New York and LA, which, you know, no shade, I'm one of them, I guess. But, (laughs) you know, that, you know, now it's so democratized. And I think there are really great parts of that, that, you know, everyone kind of gets a seat at the table in a certain way. Um, It's not perfect, but, you know, there's a lot more voices in the room Um, to, you know, people saying that you shouldn't put sunscreen on your children. You know, that's the downside. Um, But I, I hope it makes people think and really sit with it and just think, you know, how have I been influenced and how, how have I been changed and how am I living my life in a different way because I engage with these people. Absolutely. And I, I, I love how you kind of explore, like, regardless of if it's good or bad or helpful or harmful or this or that, the bottom line is influencers matter because they're influential. And whether that's, you know, contributing to fast fashion landfills in ways that are important, we explore. It's also really important to acknowledge what you said and made me teary about your daughter growing up in a city where Myrna's on billboards. Like, that's so fucking yeah. important. And um, I just love that you captured that range. And I really love the book. And I hope all of you go buy Thank it. You. Thank you for reading it. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? This is this was uh, hardly work. This was a, a joy. This will be like such a fun pool read, beach read. Like, people love it, it, the influencer scoop. And I think you approached it in a really unique way. And wish you all the success. Thank you. You as well. You have such an exciting year coming up. Oh, thank you. And well, where can people find you? The best place to find me is on Instagram at Steph E. McNeil. Um, And you can buy the book on Amazon. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble, but you can also buy it on Bookshop or at your local bookstore. I love, I love local bookstores. So hopefully you can find it there. And you just wrote a great article about Amanda Batula. I just want to shout out your work, Glamour. You've you've cranked out oh, some really good pieces, you. too. Thank you. Yeah, that was a really fun one. Um, yeah, stay tuned. I have some some fun ideas that I'm really hoping to, in the influencer space, also, you know, other Ooh. stuff, but also in the influencer space that I'm hoping to, hoping to do this year. So we'll see. Perfect. Well, guys, follow Stephanie McNeil, buy her book and stay tuned for more influencer tea from her regular day job now at Glamour. And thank you for everything. Thank you guys so much for joining. Make sure to buy Swipe Up for more. It is out now. So be sure to grab it at your favorite bookseller, wherever books are sold. And uh, thank you for supporting 
the people whose work I want to support. And don't forget to also, if you want to support this podcast and and enable me to keep going with this job that's independently produced, support COSAS. Again, their website's like 20% off site-wide, and you can use my code too. Uh, KiwiCo, ButcherBox, Ritual Vitamins. So, so grateful that these advertisers are willing to take a chance on an independent program. Makes a huge difference when you use those codes. They're not affiliate links. I don't get kickbacks, but it just shows that you listened and heard the ad. And this is an effective medium to uh, get the message out there. If you want to rate and review five stars, share with a friend, tag me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy at Be There in Five. I am always so, so deeply grateful. And be sure to check on patreon.com slash Be There in Five this week. And I post part two of me like opening all my baby stuff. And I also, again, I still need to post my Ted Lasso finale thoughts. Even though I'm late, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not fully able to let go of that show. So anyway, you guys, thanks again. I'll be back next week. If you want to call in for a future Kate Lila to get advice, give me your input, talk about influencers, celebrities, hot goss, TV shows, ask me questions about my favorite pasta shape. I don't care. That's 312 312- 379-9676. And I hope you had a great week. Thanks for the privilege of your time. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. <laughs>